Welcome everybody, it's time for another episode of Asher Sales Sense, brought to you by Asher Strategies, the only global sales training company that integrates leading sales methodologies and the latest neuroscience studies into a simple and repeatable 10-step process for sales success. I'm Susan Finch, your announcer for Asher Sales Sense. And I'm Dave Potts in the Asher Strategy Studio in Washington, D.C. Our host today is John Asher, CEO and founder of Asher Strategies. John's guest is Mark Evans, founder and CEO of SalesKit, a second brain for sales professionals to help them close more deals faster and celebrate more wins together. The title of the show is Building Your Scalable and Repeatable Sales Process. Over to you, John. So, Mark, great to have you on the show. And um, I just want to mention right up front that we've done a lot of these podcasts and so many of them are about sales skills, uh, overall sales strategy, uh, a lot about the new neuroscience of sales, which really helps us understand that there's now just not the sales process and the art of the sale, but there's really science behind sales as well. And when you look at the real, really great companies today, from a strategic standpoint, they've got a great sales playbook for their salespeople. And then from a tactical standpoint, they have a sales process. And we don't talk much about on this podcast about playbooks and process, but I know that's where your expertise lies. So I'm just going to turn it over to you, Mark, and let you start wherever you'd like to start about showing the uh, audience what they are and, and how they all fit together. Well, I can certainly do that. Well, first, let me just say, John, it's a real honor to be on uh, on the show. I've been a longtime fan. I've got several copies of your book. I'm in the middle of moving right now and finding a new house, so I couldn't bring the book to to show uh, if we were doing video here. But I really appreciate all the work you've done and and everything like that. So, yeah. So, where to start with sales process and sales playbooks? Well, I think first of all, the number one question someone has to ask, whether they're a sales leader or an entrepreneur or even a frontline salesperson that's listening to this program right now, is you got to have a sales playbook, right? There's got to be some level of systemization when it comes to your sales process. That's kind of the first one. So I would really take a look at auditing your own sales process. Do you have, if you have a team of 10 salespeople, do you have 10 different ways of selling your product or your service? 10 different ways of handling the objections that you're receiving every single day? Or do you have a systemized process that, hey, if we have 10 salespeople out there, we've got 10 kind of similar ways of how we're going to the market, of how we're talking about our origin story, of how we're handling our unique value propositions. I love how there has been so much research and time into the neuroscience of sales. I think that's a phenomenal, phenomenal add to this career and to this, um, this calling, I would even say, of sales. But one of the things that I see is that if you don't, you can have a high performance individual or you can have a high performance sales contributor. But if you don't back that up with a system, you're not going to go very far. It's it's like having a really fast car kind of on a dead end road, right? There's only going to be so far that you can go until the systems are going to collapse and break down. And so that's really where I always like to start is just start thinking about if you're a, a manager or an owner or, or an entrepreneur, all right, what are the, how can you systematize your sales process? So it's not just 10 lone wolves out there, but actually a systemized team going out to market. Yeah, no, that's a great insight. So many people don't have it. They've got the art of the sale, how, how to use their personality perfectly in sales. They got the science that we've got now with all the neuroscience studies, but 
sales process is always a weak point. And from my experience, over 30 years, really, only the large companies have sales playbooks. Hardly any smaller, smaller companies have the knowledge or the expertise or the money, frankly, the resources to invest in a development of a, of a sales playbook. Mm-hmm. How would you advise a company that, um, that's doing okay and they've got the art of the sale down, they've had sales training, they've got good product knowledge, you know, everything's pretty good. They're charged mm-hmm. up and motivated, but they don't have a sales process. Now you can start if you have CRM, as you know, Mm-hmm. We use Salesforce, and there's pretty much a very basic sales process built in there, right? The five steps. When you get to this step, it's got yep. a 10% probability, and then you know, on and on. But how do you flesh that out? Flesh it out even more, Mark. Yeah, that's a great question, John. So I think a CRM, that's a great tool to have, right? And a lot of people are on Salesforce or they're on HubSpot. And so that really helps them get to the day-to-day of tracking deals, tracking contacts. And I think that's excellent. What I really think a sales playbook needs to be is kind of your single source of truth for all things related to your sales organization. And I really think that there's kind of six core elements when it comes to a really good sales playbook. And I can buzz through those real quick. Yeah, so, please do. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So the first is messaging. I think you got to have a really firm understanding. And as the owner or the entrepreneur or as the sales leader, you need to have your messaging already put in place. I've seen far too many organizations that leave that up to chance where they say, hey, we, you know, we're going to go to market. We've got this great new product that we spent all this time engineering or, or getting ready or, or developing. And then we go to market with, well, you know, you 10 salespeople, you guys just come up with the messaging that you want to use and how you're going to explain this product. So I I think the first step is really trying to understand, all right, what are unique selling propositions and really developing messaging around that that's going to speak to that. The next is really understanding your prospect or having prospect info. Um, who is your ideal customer? What does that profile look like? Whether it's an IP, ICP, as some call it, or a persona, um, whatever that is, make sure that your sales team, both new hires as well as veteran salespeople, all have a firm understanding and consistency when it comes to who you're trying to target. You can have all the neuroscience backing your sales process. You can have all of the CRM tools and the um, the data programs and all those other different softwares. But if you're targeting the wrong person, it's like following a map, right? Where, hey, if I if I want to go from Washington, D.C. to L.A. and I start heading north, I mean, I can drive as fast as I want, uh, but it's still not going to give me west, right? And so I think it's really important to have that prospect info in an area where all your salespeople uh, can access that and really understand that. Next is outreach, right? So how do you as an organization, how do you go out and develop leads? Is it, you know, uh, sequencing of calls and emails? And is it outbound prospecting or is it inbound? But making sure that, hey, everybody on your team understands that here's the minimums that we look like, look at for an outreach strategy and what are the different elements. So often I saw at organizations um, was that if we had, again, five or 10 different salespeople, they were all doing a different outbound campaign and that's okay. But what commonly happened was there would be what I call the prairie dog technique, right? Where someone would look over the cubicle and be like, hey, John, I just heard you on the phone or what is that email that you always use to get feedback from the customer or 
how do you move this deal forward, right? And so I think a good sales playbook shares those outreach steps that are very successful. Don't reinvent the wheel with every new hire or leave it up to them to say, hey, you know, how are you going to follow up in an email in this way? But have that ready for them. Have a, have a library of your best outreach strategies, whether it's calling scripts or email scripts or um, different social media messages that you so that number one, there's some consistency to that message, but then also they're not reinventing the wheel every time. So, so those are the first three. John, are, are we still uh, on the same page or any thoughts on that? No, real good. And um, <laughs> I like that uh, prairie dog technique. <laughs> I have the image of the prairie dog popping their head up. And I also have the image of some of the sales man it, uh, managers who aren't that great, who use the whack-a-mole approach, you know. <laughs> Somebody pops up with a great idea and the sales manager whacks them down and says, come on, use the damn process we got already. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, you know, that's what I think kind of maybe the misconceptions that can happen when it comes to a playbook is where, like you mentioned before, you know, a strong manager wants to always be iterating and testing different things when it comes to their sales playbook. And so I think that's one of the benefits of a sales playbook. What can really help people is that there's this baseline when it comes to, hey, here's the, you know, let's say it's the 10 different ways we're going to try to outreach. Well, if you have a strong sales playbook, you know exactly what you're sending out. So then you can eventually test it and refine it and say, hey, this message doesn't really work, but I'm getting better results with this message. So if you don't have a baseline, there's really no way to, to kind of track the change there. And now with everybody working from home, it's far more difficult to share the email that's working really well. You know, this is what I'm doing to increase sales unless that kind of serendipity isn't being engineered by a sales manager or by an entrepreneur who's busy right now with everything else in their business. It can be very difficult for sales team members to really share that kind of commonality of, hey, here's what's working for me, unless there's a tool, right? Unless there's kind of a one source of truth to say, hey, put it in the playbook. This is really working for me and then distribute it out to the team. That's great. For example, one of our things in our playbook is, you know, there's four different personality styles. And if you're going to, so buyers can be any of those styles. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to send them an email or any message, then it really needs to be targeted to their personality style, not the way the salesperson wants to write it based on their personality. And so those scripts, if you will, whether they're in mails to ask somebody to connect in LinkedIn or Navigator, or just an out, outreach, as you mentioned, email, or even a, um, a voicemail, if you get it, needs to be targeted to the buyer's personality style. So you can't just have one script for these things. You've got to have four scripts. Yeah. And they should all be in the playbook. I love that. I totally agree with that. And I think the last thing you want to have happen is, is have someone either one, like going away and trying to reinvent the wheel. Like I can't tell you how many times, John, in leading a sales team, we would spend hours kind of perfecting that. Hey, here's who we're going to target. Here's their personality type. So let's match it with this email, right? This wasn't just uh, shooting from the hip or kind of throwing darts in the air, but we took a very structured approach on how we're going to write these emails and structure this outreach. And it always seemed like, you know, in the first day of like a new hire, they're like, ah, well, I'm going to do it my own way. And, you know, I'm trying to pull out my non-existing hair um, with like, what are you doing? We spent all these hours and ultimately it was our problem as management to say, Hey, well, there wasn't a clearly defined, here's the playbook. Here's what you use in this case. And that's shame on us. And I think that's a lesson that a lot of managers can, 
can go with that. Oftentimes, if someone's not having success in your organization, well, are there the right tools there, right? We're so yeah. quick to jump and say like, well, you're just not living up to the expectation. Well, has the expectation been set, right? Like I can't go to a fireplace and say, give me some fire and then I'll give you wood. I've got to be a part of that journey as well. I've got to help facilitate and empower them to give them the tools that they need to, to be their most successful. John, it's time for a quick commercial break. Over 200 correlation studies show that natural aptitude is the most significant factor in predicting sales success. Asher's Advanced Personality Questionnaire, the APQ, consistently identifies peak performers in outside sales, inside sales, sales management, customer support, and 17 other business positions. Go to asherstrategies.com today or call 866-833-9941. That's Asher Strategies at 866-833-9941. We've been speaking with Mark Evans about building your scalable and repeatable sales process. Now back to the discussion. So Mark, that was a great discussion about the um, first three of your six elements in a playbook. And I wanted to mention one thing about the importance of the USP from my experience and the unique selling proposition. And that is um, if three companies are vying for an opportunity and all three companies have you know, good experience, good quality, good service, reasonable prices. And so the buyer has a hard time choosing because they're all kind of tied for first in the buyer's mind. Most of us who have some experience with this know where the discussion will always go, the price. But on the other hand, if one of the three companies is clearly different, clearly better, and can make a USP statement that includes the word only, or we're unique in that, then the buyer will make a quick, what it considers risk-free decision, and the price hardly ever comes up. That's why the USP that you mentioned, you know, that's why management consultants have been beating up on us executives for 50 years <laughs> about, about the importance of this. Would you uh, add your other three elements? The first three are great, totally agree with them. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'd be happy to. So the next is discovery. And I really call this the Hall of Fame. And this can be a part of the discovery process, but really having some clear guidelines with this is what we're asking in a discovery call. John, I sometimes, my mouth would be agape when I would be consulting for companies that, uh, you know, had sales teams of 50, 75, 100 people, you know, doing tens of millions in revenue. And when I said, hey, you know, show me your discovery process. What are the questions that you're asking in just about every call? Uh, they'd be like, well, what? Like we kind of leave that to chance. And so I really believe that in order to have a really rounded out sales playbook, we also need to, to own that discovery conversation. So what are the questions we're asking? How are we then going to demo the product? So this can be just having those questions listed down and having that, that sales meeting structure kind of mapped out. It can also be a hall of fame as well, you know, recording. And now luckily or not, I don't know if luckily or not, um, but now we're in this Zoom age where so many of our meetings and, and discovery calls and pitches and things like that can be recorded very easily. It's very easy to create a hall of fame where you can use it as a library to show new hires on what sort of um, 
things they should be imitating and they should be copying of their other salespeople, the success habits that other people are showing. Again, not reinventing the wheel, using what works. And then also showing, well, this isn't what's going to work, right? And if you come into trouble, if you're in this situation, here's how so-and-so handled it before. So often in sales, we think that, well, each and every single instance is very unique and will never happen again. Well, I don't know if this has been your situation, John, or your case, but I found myself in very repeatable situations time and time again. And uh, luckily, I'm, I'm a little hard-headed, so I've got to touch the stove a couple of times before I know it's hot or, uh, you know, fall off a couple of times before I actually get the point. But uh, once you start realizing that there's certain patterns that will happen in certain meetings, like you mentioned before of, you know, we're going to come up against price here pretty quickly because we're not, we haven't stated our USP significantly enough or, or adequately enough, those are situations that you can see and then you can use that to inform uh, either new salespeople or veteran salespeople or different channel salespeople as well. So that'd be number four is discovery. Oh, great. Uh, great, great to have a, uh, a, uh, a process for discovery, the needs analysis. Yes, sir. The needs analysis. So important. So important. And so let's move into number five. And that's really the follow-up. Not everybody's going to buy after one appointment. Um, Some sales cycles take one, two, three years. I know Dave's uh, sales cycle, I'm sure, was a lot longer with with military and software and everything like that. Um, So follow-up, right? What are some of the elements of content that you can drip towards your prospect? What are some different strategies that you can do to employ to move someone down your funnel? that isn't just picking up the phone and saying, hey, is the money ready yet? Um, But what are some of those elements that you can do to inform them and to really alter the conversation instead of it being a pitch session, let's say, to, well, hey, you should choose us amongst your other three vendors because, you know, we're all the, we're all kind of the same in your mind and now it's going to come down to price. But if you use follow-up effectively, you can use it as a way to really inform the buyer on what they should be looking out for in the buying process, right? You could be the expert in your industry. And if you take that approach in your follow-up instead of just, hey, is the money ready yet? But as an actual advisor, you can change and shift the entire dynamic. And so I really like a playbook that has the different follow-ups steps, has some of the content mapped out, maybe case studies, white papers, easily accessible by all salespeople so that it's not in a black hole of of Google Drive or something like that, that it can be really easily accessed and used in a uh, intentional part of the sales process. No, it's great. And to give you a a couple of examples, at Navy, I was the fifth string quarterback behind Roger Slaback. Wow. I never got in a game. I never suited up for a game, but I practiced a lot against the sixth string. We had eight strings. And as you know, Roger, Hall of Fame quarterback, et cetera. And he started a very successful real estate company. And he has one mantra for everybody in the company. And that is this. There are no traffic jams on the extra mile. No traffic jams on the extra mile. Meaning if you go extra, provide extra to your prospects and customers, you separate yourself from everybody else. So we have a rule in our company based on that. Any of your follow-up, has got to provide new information, right? Either, as you said, a case study, perhaps a video that's related to the conversation you just had. Because no buyer wants to know, are you 
it wants to hear, are you ready to close yet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But so many people, right? If or so many salespeople, if they don't have kind of let's call it that ammunition to move the conversation forward and to really insert value, that's how they're just going to be looked at. Oh, this is just another vendor. I don't want to take this person's phone call, right? All they're going to do is ask me or if I'm ready to buy yet. There hasn't been any value brought to the table, and so I, I completely agree with you, John. And I I really really like that. There's no traffic jams on the extra mile. That's a I great one. Too. I love that. You can see that image in your mind. Yes. Yes. I really like that. (laughs) Number six, of course, is going to be closing, right? And so, and this, this is a little bit more difficult one to put in a sales playbook. People often say, well, how do I teach closing? How do I do that? You don't necessarily have to teach it, right? There's a lot of training that offers this. There's a lot of things that you can do when it comes to closing. This should be a natural progression kind of next part of the sale. But what you can put in a sales playbook when it comes to closing are your different negotiation levers, right? Is it pricing necessarily, or is it contract term? Is it different and other things that you can add to the equation? But so often new salespeople, and and I've even been in places where even veteran salespeople, they're not aware of all of the different negotiation levers that they can have. And so it's almost like building out recipes or it's like building out plays inside of a sales playbook of here's seven different ways that you can help negotiate the close. Not all of them have to do with dropping your price, but it can be involving the CEO in the conversation. It can be trying to target someone else in, let's say, in their Vistage group and trying to get a case study. Or There's a lot of other elements that one could do. But if they don't have that knowledge and if they can't pick from those plays or pick from and pull from those recipes, oftentimes salespeople just find themselves trying to gouge price, right? And well, if I, if I give it to them for 16% off and our competition's 15% off, of course I'm going to get it. And that's a losing battle to the bottom that nobody wants. Nobody wants that. No, it sounds terrible. I'll give you a little bit of our experience on this. So we have in our sales training, 10 ways to close a deal based on those different negotiating levers that you mentioned. And we think of closing as one of two ways. Either you close the deal, or if it's a longer sales cycle time or a bigger deal or both, and, the, and you have to go through, say, five steps with the buyer, maybe one's a demo, et cetera, then you want salespeople trained to close each step in the process. In other words, get a yes from the buyer at the conclusion of um, each step. And the other thing that's really different now, when you take our 10 ways to close, Because buyers are now driven by two things that we all know, uncertainty about the future, and half of them are doing well, so they've got restricted cash flow, we have had to modify those 10 ways to close to make them different so the negotiating levers are different during this pandemic we're in to get deals closed. So you got to be flexible as well when something like what we're in now comes up. Yeah, I really like that. And you can't just go back to the to the tried and true of, hey, we're just going to reduce price because it's COVID. But I really like that. Hey, here's 10 different ways, matching that up with the different ICPs and the four personality types, because um, all of them are a little bit different. And I really like, yeah. John, how, hey, we're either going to close the deal or we're going to get permission to move on to the next step or just we're going to close. Like, I I think so many people look at closing of either I either got the money or I didn't. Well, closing can just be an agreement to the next step of the sale, which oftentimes in large case sales or in large profile sales and complex sales, that's just as good. Maybe not as good as getting the check, but right, it's one more step to get to that finish line because it's not as easy as from point A to point B and the sale is closed. Exactly. I'll give you a, a fun example. So there's two cognitive biases that can go into closing the next step. One's called the rationale bias, give the buyer a reason to take the next step because the probability will go up. And then the second is the consistency bias. Buyers like to be consistent. So get them to say yes. If you were the buyer and I was the seller at the end of our call, I could say, so Mark, 
based on our conversation, I'm going to go back to the company and write a white paper and send it to you. Have I closed anything? No. I could add, to make it better, the rationale bias, because I want you to see the tremendous benefit our solution could have on your operational efficiency. So better, but not good enough. Mm -hmm. I've got to add, when you get the white paper, will you take a look and get back to me? I've got to add, when you get the white paper, will you take a look and get back to me? Now, if the buyer says, yes, you've now closed the next step <laughs> in the staircase just to yes. And in COVID, as you suggest, it's, it can be different. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that, John. And I think so many times, right, when, especially when it comes to closing, we train it once, potentially, right? If you're at an organization, maybe you'll go through some workshops, but very rarely are we doing follow-up on this, or very rarely is there a way to access kind of that file drawer, that recipe file, or that sales playbook to say, all right, here's the negotiation lever I'm going to use in this case. And so oftentimes we have salespeople go through a little bit of training and this applies to just beyond closing, but there's a ton of studies out there that most people only retain about 20% of what you train or what you tell them, right? Especially the first time cases for me. And I've seen this play out in my professional life as well. So we get frustrated with either salespeople that say, you know, Hey, I just don't remember this. And right. Maybe if a sales manager, a patient one will answer it once, maybe they'll answer it twice, but any more than that and revisiting that topic, then that individual starts getting looked at like, well, are you picking this up? Yet here, all the math points to and all the studies point to that we're only retaining 18 to 20% of this knowledge. And so salespeople start to do one of two things, right? They either make up their own because they can't remember necessarily, or if they go back to their manager, they're looked at as a problem, right? They're looked at as someone that's just not sharp enough to be here potentially. And so that's something that we really got to contend with. And I think the best way to do that is by building that sales playbook where it's not necessarily we're putting it on the sales manager to have to solve their problem, but we're giving that salesperson the tool to say, Hey, go find it yourself, right? Like we, what we would do with most of theirs, go investigate this yourself, use the sales playbook. So it frees up the sales manager and hopefully saves a lot of time and effort and frustration on the actual individual contributor as well. John, it's time for the wrap up. So Mark, this has been great. The time went by so fast. Wish we had more time. So uh, most of the people listening are either CEOs, sales managers, or salespeople. And many of them are listening to this while they're walking the dog or driving in, in their car or taking a walk or jogging or, and can't write things down. So is there one or two or three, three things you can leave with everybody listening so they can take action on and also how to, how to get a hold of you? Yeah, I'd be happy to, John. So a couple things that you can take action on right away. Let's start there. Really start by thinking through and auditing your own sales team. Do we have 10 different individual contributors all selling their own sales system? Or do we have one sales system with 10 people all performing and moving towards that kind of end goal? That would be the first one to do is to really do an audit and a self-check. Number two, start developing that source of truth, that playbook for your sales team. It can be as simple as just saying, hey, everybody, all the sales emails that you're using, I want them all in Google Drive or Dropbox or in some sort of technology, right? Uh, you know, put it all in one area at least, right? Try to wrap your arms around what is our unique selling proposition and 
as a CEO or as an entrepreneur, make sure that you're leading from the front to say, hey, this is how I want my product sold, or this is how I want us to be communicated in the market. So I would say that those are the first two things. That's kind of the low-hanging fruit that sales teams can do. Entrepreneurs can use with it as well. If they need a technology that can do a lot of this for them, that's where our solution comes in, that sales kit. And if they want to get a hold of me, the best way to do that is through my email or through our website, which is www.getsaleskit.com. And that's where they can reach out to me as well. All right, terrific. And so if the listeners want to get started on a sales playbook and want an architecture, then Mark's got it. And he also has this uh, toolkit. So a lot of it's already developed. You just have to kind of modify it a bit to fit your situation. So again, thanks so much, Mark. Well, John, this has been my pleasure. Uh, I really appreciate all the work you've done and knowledge you've imparted on me as well in our conversations and through your book. Thank you. And thank you both. That's all the time we have for today. For our listeners, be sure to subscribe to Asher Strategies Radio on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast venue. You can also ask Alexa to play Asher Strategies Radio. From now until we meet again, John Asher reminds us to please, please get out there and sell something. 